Welcome to the Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast, where we navigate the most important changes that affect pharmacotherapy, plus you can earn pharmacy and medicine CE credit. We know you're busy, so use your time effectively by listening, learning, and claiming credit. It's a new way to learn. Just log on to CEimpact.com for more information on podcasts. Hello and welcome again to Game Changers Clinical Conversations, uh, the podcast about all things pharmacotherapy and medicine. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. I hope uh, wherever you are, uh, the summer's treating you okay, um, and uh, the Delta variant uh, here in the United States, I hope, isn't hitting you too hard. Unfortunately, in my neck of the woods, we've had a, a definite resurgence, which is maybe partially why uh, we decided that uh, we were going to do a, a bit of a COVID update. I was kind of hoping to never have to do this again. I know that was probably wishful thinking. Uh, but today we're actually going to be talking about two papers, uh, one in treatment of COVID and some information of the, about the vaccine. But before we get started on any of that, thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Uh, please head over to where you get your podcasts and like us and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, most importantly, please visit CE Impact and uh, take a look at the, the wide variety of CE programs they have, including uh, a program which allows you to get CE and CME for just listening to this podcast. And uh, uh, a part of that of that new um, uh, systems is, is something called the Pharmacist Network, which is a, a way for you to uh, take a look at the wide variety of, of, of CE programs they have. But even more importantly, join a community that and I've been telling people that that the Pharmacist Network is kind of like a combination of a really good CE system and and LinkedIn where you can have conversations and discuss things you learn. And, and I think that's that's all great. So, again, head over to CE Impact and, and take a look and see what they've got. So today. As I said, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> we're going to be talking about COVID some more. So uh, the first uh, paper I wanted to discuss with everyone was a paper that was uh, just published last week in the preprint servers. So again, as always, we've, we've done this many times now. And since the pandemic started is, is to always mention that this has not been peer reviewed. It's not officially published in any journals. So always take you know these papers with a grain of salt. But with the rapidity of which things move in COVID, I still think these are reasonable papers to look at. And this was a pretty well done paper. So uh, this paper uh, uh, looked at the anti-parasitic drug nitazoxanide in, in patients with COVID. And so I can already kind of over the ether hear the groans of, oh my goodness, not another talk about an anti-parasitic in COVID. Um, and, and I believe me, I, I feel you and I, and, I, and, I get, and I get that, but this was a very well done study. So uh, this was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial done in 36 outpatient medical clinics in the United States and Puerto Rico. Um, it was officially signed, set up with the NIH, and they ha and, and they have a clinical trials number and all that sort of good stuff. And um, it had a fairly large number of patients in it too. So before we get into to what they did, you know, why would nitazoxanide work, or theoretically, why would any antiparasitic work? And of course, these drugs in the United States are approved for things like cryptosporidium or Giardia, um, things we don't see a ton in the United States, but you do occasionally run into. Um, but in other areas of the world where, where parasitic infections are much 
more common. These drugs are used very, very commonly. And, and nidazoxanide is one of those medications that is used throughout Latin America, Asia for the treatment of intestinal parasitic infections. It does seem that many antiparasitic drugs, at least in vitro, seem to also be able to block replication of a wide variety of viruses, including several coronaviruses. And so I think that's where, you know, the whole ivermectin thing, and that's something we won't get into today, uh, and nidazoxanide, you know, there's certainly some in vitro reasons why we would think these would work. Also, there's some in vitro data that suggests that these drugs uh, and nidazoxanide uh, tends to block inflammatory response to respiratory infections. And so, you know, certainly there's there's some biologic plausibility about why nidazoxanide would work. Um, and then like many, many other drugs, there's been some computer simulations and, and, and other types of, of in silico studies that have tried to, to find uh, um, uh, compounds that would work against COVID-19. And this is one that, that made it through all that and suggested that it would be very beneficial. Um, and then in, in, um, in, the, in the test tube, it does seem to actually do pretty good at, at, at blocking uh, replication of COVID-19. And it also seems to have a synergistic effect in, when combined with other drugs in, in vitro. So there's definitely a biologic plausibility about why nidazoxanide would work. They're not literally just pulling a, a drug out of a hat and saying, let's give this a shot and see what happens. So again, this was a fairly well done study. I mean, I, you would almost call this a phase three study because uh, they looked at patients over age 12 who had symptoms of COVID within 72 hours. And because they're, it's even to this date, even though the WHO uh, symptom scale is used a lot, there is no standard patient survey uh, instrument to, to, to measure uh, um, a level of symptoms. And so what uh, these investigators did is they used something similar. They used something called the FluPro survey instrument. And that has been a well-validated instrument in several languages and all that that helps uh, determine uh, length of symptoms and improvement in symptoms with the, with the flu. And since the symptoms are, are often very similar, they decided to use the flu the FluPro survey instrument as, as one of their primary outcomes. So, so basically, if you had symptoms that were like COVID, you came in, you got your FluPro pro survey and it's and it suggested that yeah you've got some sort of respiratory virus uh, you could be considered included in the study they did not in, uh, include patients who had severe covid-19 which meant they had shortness of breath at rest they were tachycardic at over 125 uh, just sitting there or a respiratory arresting rate of greater than 30 or uh, were hypoxic so those are all patients who would probably end up in the hospital so these again let's be totally clear were were outpatients with early mild to moderate covid uh, they also excluded patients with uh, previous covid-19 infections, patients with known immunodeficiency, which they didn't go into much detail about what that uh, um, enumerated, and then pregnant patients. The intervention was giving nidazoxanide, which is available in the United States, and they gave it as two 300 extended release tablets, so 600 milligrams a dose, orally with food twice daily for five days. So basically four tabs a day for five days or 20 tablets for a total course. This is a higher dose than is often used for, for parasitic infections, but they based, they say in the study, they based the dose on, on um, a dose ranging finding study in patients with influenza. So uh, um, uh, again, not a whole lot of data in vivo in patients with, with uh, uh, COVID-19, but there has been some investigations of this drug for the flu. And so they basically used that dose basically. They then are uh, stratified patients after randomization to whether they had symptoms for less than 36 hours or greater than or equal to 36 hours, and also whether patients were at high risk for developing uh, progression of 
of COVID-19 onto severe disease. Um, then after randomization, they received, uh, underwent a physical exam, they collected nasal pharyngeal swabs to see if they actually had COVID. They also checked the antibody titers, which is uh, pretty interesting. Um, and then they gave the, the study drug or, or placebo uh, dispensed and then followed for 28 days, again, using this flu pro survey instrument to see if their symptoms improved. They calculated that they need about 312 patients to see and not have a 90% power to detect a statistically significant difference um, on the, in the survival distributions because uh, in the outcomes, their primary outcome was this first uh, time from first dose of sustained response, which was basically a, a measure of, of, of within symptom improvement using this, this flu pro survey. So, so basically, the primary outcome of the study was using this flu pro survey instrument, were you better or were you not better? Uh, at, um, at, at significant time points after you started therapy, basically. Um, they do go into some detail because I'm sure the, the peer reviewers of the study, uh, when they do look at it, will we'll probably have a lot of questions about using this flu pro instrument and, and why did they choose it. But it, you know, certainly to me, it seems reasonable because many of the symptoms, again, as you might imagine, are very similar between the flu and, and, and uh, COVID with the exception of things like loss of taste and smell. But the other things certainly were, were, were in there. They also had some secondary out, uh, endpoints, and the big secondary outpoint they had was rate of progression to severe COVID. So basically, if you took uh, nitazoxanide, what, what was the chances that uh, you were uh, going to develop hypoxia and require uh, uh, perhaps a, a, um, a hospitalization or at least a, a, you know evaluation in an emergency department? They also stratified this by uh, uh, patients who are at high risk and had risk factors for high risk. So study, again, went on uh, from, from August 18th, 2020 to January. January 8th, 2021, and again, done in the United States, uh, and, and uh, they ended up having uh, 379 patients who had a laboratory-confirmed uh, infection. So, uh, so basically, they definitely met their power to, to, to show that. And what they found was that the primary outcome was actually negative. So the, that, that uh, they had 92% uh, of, of the of patients uh, of all possible daily flu questionnaires were completed. Um, and what they found was that the mean time to sustained response was 13.28 days for the nitazoxanide group and 12.35 days for the placebo group. So it was actually a little bit longer for the, the nitazoxanide group. Um, and, and so that did not reach obviously statistical significance. However, and this is what the authors are touting pretty heavily, is that uh, uh, eight patients met criteria in this cohort for progression to, uh, for, to severe COVID-19. And in those patients, uh, it was much, you were much less likely to progress on to severe COVID disease if you received nitazoxanide compared to, to, to placebo. Only uh, uh, one patient in the uh, nitazoxanide group uh, uh, um, progressed to severe disease compared to seven patients um, uh, in the placebo group that just missed getting statistical significance, but um, may very well be uh, clinically significant. Um, and then uh, when they took a look at patients who are at high risk or low risk, there really wasn't any uh, any difference, though most of the patients who are at high risk for, for progressing, that was most of the patients who, not surprisingly, did in fact pro progress on to, to, uh, to developing COVID. And again, in that group, they did find a, a, a clinically, I would say, a, decrease, a significant decrease, but did not reach statistical significance, just, just missed it actually. So as far as safety was concerned, um, the big side effect of this drug, kind of ironically, considering we use it for, for parasitic infections, is diarrhea. And that was actually the main ADR they found um, in the study, but with about 12% of patients. And so bottom line was that, uh, that, that, that the study really was negative when 
you take a look at the, at the primary outcome, but the authors are touting it as, you know, this may be true, but in patients at high risk, uh, this may be a, a therapy that, that may prevent them progressing on to, to uh, developing severe disease. And I might even buy that, um, even though I am always skeptical when a, when, a, when a study has a negative primary outcome and a positive secondary outcome, I was always kind of taught to kind of take a look at that with, with, a, with, with a, bit, a bit closer look, because again, many times, uh, most secondary outcomes are, are considered hypothesis generating and not hypothesis proving. Um, um, but their power calculations did, you know, have an, uh, enough patients theoretically to show this difference if one existed. But the other big strike to me is the cost. And, and I knew this is a pricey drug. I, we've had to use this medication a couple times on, on my medicine service uh, for patients admitted for, for various parasitic infections. And doing a quick jump over to a couple of websites, I found that, that this would be pretty pricey uh, for patients with mild to moderate COVID on the order of about $2,000 for about 20 tablets. And of course, I, I'm very skeptical that any insurance company would ever pay for that. So, you know, in the end, I, I've seen some, some, some lay media, you know, say, hey, here's this new, you know, new anti-parasitic that may have some role. And in fact, it may have a role. I, 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 don't, I, I don't dispute the fact that, that uh, there, you know, this was a well-done randomized placebo-controlled study. I just dispute that the, their outcomes, basically, that, that unfortunately their primary outcome was not positive. So, they, so patients, uh, you know, did not get better faster symptomatically when they received this medication. Um, this secondary outcome did seem to be beneficial, uh, but at the cost of $2,000 per patient, you know, um, and, and looking at, at the numbers involved, your number needed to treat is going to be relatively high. And I don't think it's going to be cost effective for, for, for most patients to consider using this, uh, especially because I have the sneaking suspicion that many of them are going to be paying out of pocket. So that's our first study. And before we get to our second study, which was, uh, of course, been all over the news uh, talking about the effectiveness of uh, the COVID vaccines against the Delta variant, uh, let's take a second and listen uh, to our producer, CE Impact, talk about some of the great programs they have. Do you love Game Changers? We would love if you, our dedicated listeners, would share your feedback on your experience of listening to Game Changers every week. Check out the link in the show notes to share your feedback. So welcome back. Our next study we're going to talk about uh, in our COVID Palooza today is talking about uh, the um, uh, recently published New England Journal of Medicine study uh, looking at the effectiveness of the uh, uh, Pfizer vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, and the AstraZeneca vaccine against the Delta variant. And so, as I'm sure, unless you've been, you know, literally turning off all electronic communication, and you know that isn't really a bad idea, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you, I'm sure you're well aware of the Delta variant is now the the uh, the primary variant of uh, of interest in or concern in uh, in most countries in the world, especially the United States. What makes the Delta variant different? It's that it has a, a spike protein mutations in several parts of the, of the virus. These mutations may affect the immune response directed toward key antigenic uh, regions of the receptor binding protein, and that uh, appears that with, that with these strains, that basically leads to vastly increased replication. And so when you take a look at, at, at some of the papers, they suggest that that replication occurs, you know, on at least an order of magnitude higher than with the alpha uh, um, um, or, or primary uh, uh, variant of, of, of the organism or wild type variant of the organism, if you will. Um, and so because of that, and um, um, uh, because of this much, much higher viral load, um, it's been shown, I think, pretty conclusively now that the Delta variant is much more likely to spread um, and is much more infectious with R-naughts that are, are 
much higher than than with the alpha variant. And so um, this is, of course, as anyone who lives in the U.S. well knows, you know, has caused us to kind of maybe rethink some things at, at a public health level. Um, so, of course, one, one, one of the big questions is going to be, well, gee, you know, well, many of us have, have been vaccinated against uh, um, um, uh, COVID, you know, where are we with, with this variant and, and these vaccines? So uh, what they did in this study, which was kind of interesting, it'd be kind of difficult to, to, to do a, a large, you know, prospective study, obviously, you know, in, in, in a short time period. So they basically used two approaches to estimate the effect of vaccine on the Delta variant. The first thing they did is they did a test negative case control study, which I thought was kind of interesting. And so what they did was was they um, they they uh, uh, looked at the vaccine effectiveness in, against symptomatic disease caused by the Delta variant as compared to the Alpha variant over a period that the Delta variant had been circulating, and basically looked at who had negatives and who had positives, and looked if there was any difference between the two between the Alpha and, the, and uh, when the Alpha variant was dominant and the Delta variant was dominant to see if there was any difference. That's not as you might imagine them probably the most scientific accurate or, or, or super accurate way to do it, but it does give us a nice, I think, down and dirty calculation to take a look and see about how, how effective the, the, uh, the, the vaccine is. And then for, this, for the secondary analysis, they looked at a proportion of patients with cases caused by the Delta variant relative to the Alpha variant estimated according to vaccine status. So, so basically, you know, were you vaccinated or not? And then what proportion of those patients uh, had, uh, had, if they were positive, ended up having the Delta variant relative to, to the, to the wild-type or alpha, alpha variant, basically. So uh, the underlying assumption there, of course, was that if the vaccine had some efficacy and was equally effective against each variant, a similar proportion of cases in, in, with each variant would be expected in the unvaccinated persons and the vaccinated persons. However, if the vaccine was less effective against the Delta variant than the, than the Alpha variant, then the Delta variant would expect to be make, making up a a higher proportion of patients in, in uh, who were vaccinated than were, were unvaccinated. So kind of an interesting, you know, two different ways to kind of take a look at, at kind of a back of the envelope, down and dirty sort of, of estimation of, of how effective uh, the, these uh, vaccines are against this Delta variant without actually having to do an entirely new, you know, prospective randomized study where you look at just patients with the Delta variant. That's obviously going to be very challenging to do and, and take time that we really don't have. So this study was done in the United United Kingdom, and as always, they, as you might imagine, they have a, have a, an excellent pharmacovigilance uh, uh, system, as well as very good information on people who've been uh, immunized. They have the National Immunization Management System uh, for, for testing data, and they basically use these databases uh, on vaccinated patients in the United Kingdom. They've done uh, quite, uh, quite a bit more sequencing in the UK than we have in the US, so they have a much better idea of, of, uh, of uh, overall population spread of the different variants. And and, and found, you know, as, as we found here in the United States, that the Delta variant over that over a period of time has definitely become the dominant variant um, uh, for for COVID. Uh, so again, uh, you know, I, using large databases to kind of figure this out. This, these databases also included some demographic information as well as some other information which might help us, you know, tease out any differences, and that included age, gender. Um, uh, 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 what area of the UK they lived in, what race or ethnic group, uh, if they were living independently or in a, a care home, if they had a history of foreign travel, um, and then uh, health and social care worker status, and then being in a clinically vulnerable group at high risk for developing a, a severe disease or hospitalization or death from COVID. Um, they, uh, um, 
you know, for the test negative case control analysis, they use logistic regression to estimate the odds of having a symptomatic PCR confirmed case of COVID-19 among vaccinated persons as compared to unvaccinated persons, which was the control. And cases uh, were identified as having the Delta variant by means of either sequencing or uh, a, a specialized PCR test. And, uh, um, and, and they also looked at the alpha variant that way. If a patient tested on multiple uh, positive on multiple occasions in a 90 day period, which rightly represents a single illness episode, they only took the first, the first one basically. So, so over the course of the study period, they had 38,592 linked sequence tests. Um, and so uh, they, they looked at, at, at uh, um, uh, the patients who basically uh, were over age 16 and had either been uh, vaccinated with the uh, uh, Oxford uh, uh, or AstraZeneca uh, uh, virus, which is of course the adenovirus that's the one shot versus the BNT162 uh, vaccine, which is the Pfizer mRNA two-shot uh, uh, series um, in, in the study. And in the end, they had about 19,109 sequent cases included. So then when they took a look at this, uh, they found that after a first vaccine dose, so people who had only received either, um, who had received only the first vaccine of the Pfizer um, uh, 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 vaccine, they found uh, that the, the vaccine against the Delta variant was only about 30.7% effective compared to the Alpha variant, which is about 48.7% uh, effective after that first shot. Um, and uh, 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 the absolute difference was uh, was about 11.9 percentage points, uh, and then 18.7 percentage uh, points as well uh, with with the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, the difference in um, was much smaller after a second shot, and and I think that's the key piece here is that when they took a look at patients who received two uh, uh, their second uh, uh, vaccination with the Pfizer vaccine, the vaccine uh, uh, effectiveness was 87.5 percent for the Alpha variant and 79.6 percent for the Delta variant. So, you know, yes, a small decrease, but very, very small. So that's, that's, that's good news. Um, so with the Pfizer uh, vaccine, a small difference in, in, F, in effectiveness between variants was seen after that second dose. Um, again, we've known that, that, the, that the, the Pfizer vaccine and all the mRNA vaccines are on 90% effective. That's what they found here, about 93.7% effectiveness with the alpha variant. It went down to 88% with the Delta variant. Those numbers were overall lower with, with, with the uh, Oxford vi uh, vaccine, but they were still okay, um, certainly, um, um, and, and they were 74% uh, and 67% percent between the, the the alpha and the delta so basically 67 percent overall effectiveness with the with the uh, oxford vaccine against the delta variant and um uh, about 88 percent you know uh, uh, effectiveness with the uh with the pfizer vaccine against the delta variant so uh, you know i've read uh, you know quite a bit of, of stuff on this and i think people are kind of breathing a sigh of relief and and i think that's reasonable i think i think we can say that at least uh, based on on this study that it seems that that um the Delta variant, even though it's much more infectious, does not seem to put people at risk uh, who have been vaccinated to to be hospitalized or die uh, from 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 COVID. Now, many have argued that those aren't the only two bad outcomes that can occur from COVID, and I completely agree with that. You know, um, you can be pretty sick for a while. Long COVID is is certainly a thing that we have to worry about. Um, and so, you know, it, you know, we I don't think we get to pat ourselves on the back and go, you know, 
running around, you know, saying we're, we're all done with, with COVID. And in fact, I think, you know, especially in the United States, uh, there's been, you know, some concern that there's been, there have been breakthrough in infections with, uh, with COVID in, in vaccinated patients with this Delta variant. And it's one of the reasons why, why, you know, some masking requirements are being considered or, or, or recommended by, by CDC. That certainly makes sense to me, um, you know, until we kind of get more of a handle on what's going on with the Delta variant. So, you know, I think overall good news with this, I think, I think what this basically says is that that at least in the in, in the first several months after vaccination, there's only a slight decrease in uh, efficacy, uh, really with 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 either vaccine. So that that's good, um, and 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 so you know that I think that that gives us some you know lets us breathe a, a bit of a sigh of relief that 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 you know that we didn't see a plummeting sort of of, of uh, effectiveness. Um, and the the question about whether Delta is 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 more virulent than than it's other uh, uh, variants is still a bit up for, for, for grabs. Some have argued the answer is yes, because um, uh, because of its higher viral replication load, does that lead to more inflammation and more risk of, of, of harming the patient? Others have argued that it's literally just a, an increase in infectiousness, not necessarily virulence. In any event, I think this uh, more than ever before gives people the, the time to say, you know, you really, you really should go ahead and get vaccinated if you haven't already done that. I hope everybody listening to my voice has been. Um, so, so you know, if if you're like, well, what's the point of me getting vaccinated? There's this Delta thing, and it's not going to protect you anyway. That's absolutely not what this study has shown. So. All right. So that wraps it up for the, for this week of uh, Game Changers. Again, thank you for listening. Again, please give us a like, give us a subscribe if you haven't already had a chance to. Um, and as always, head over to CE Impact. And for a very reasonable rate of, of, of only uh, uh, $3.99 a month, you can actually get CE and CME for, for listening to, to, to my voice and just answering a couple quick questions. So I hope you're staying well. Uh, take care. We will see you next week. And remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care. Thanks for listening in. Check out the CE for this podcast at ceimpact.com or download the Pharmacy Network app by searching CE Impact in your app store and join the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Happy learning!